As I said this morning, we're in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. I'll go ahead and start by reading that passage, and then we will jump into our message today. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, you can open up to page 973 to find this reading. So listen to God's word from Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. This letter to the Galatians is a letter that addresses the most important questions in life. The question of what message saves sinners? And the question of what does the Christian life look like? In the context of this letter, one of the questions is, is is the message that saves a message of belief in Christ plus something else, like obedience to the law of Moses? Should a Christian's life look like the life of an observant Jew? Is that what it's required to be saved? At the core of these questions is another question. Since God is holy and perfectly righteous and cannot tolerate evil, how can it be that any guilty sinner can stand in God's presence? How can any guilty sinner be forgiven by God and stand righteous before him. The scriptural terminology for that question is, how can the unrighteous be justified before God? That's what today's sermon is all about in this text. How are sinners justified? And what does the life of a justified sinner look like? As I mentioned when we read the New Testament reading, this passage doesn't define justification by faith for us. It argues how we're justified, but we have to go to other places in the scripture to define it. So we can go to Romans 3 and look at some of the things that Paul says there. As you notice, perhaps, as we read, one of the things Paul is adamant to do there is to first begin with our sinful state. He wants to make it clear that everyone, Jews and Gentiles, all of us are sinful. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So that's a lot of that first part of that chapter was establishing the sinfulness of everybody. Everybody is under the wrath of God. So to have a correct understanding of justification, we have to begin there with that truth that we're all under God's wrath. And if God were to forgive sinners simply by ignoring their sin or just sweeping it under the rug, overlooking it, that would mean that God would cease to be righteous. Part of God's righteousness is that he's the righteous judge of evil. Whatever is against him, 
he judges. That's where the doctrine of justification comes in. It tells us that the righteous God is able to justify guilty sinners because of Christ. And specifically in Romans 3, Paul draws our attention to Christ's propitiating work on the cross. To propitiate means to turn away wrath. So Jesus is the perfectly obedient God-man, the only one who can bear the wrath of God for sinners. So when we trust in God's work, God's wrath against us is propitiated, which means it's turned away from us and poured out on the Son of God, the sufficient sacrifice. In Romans chapter 3, verse 25, we're told that God put forward Jesus Christ as the propitiation by his blood, and this is to be received by faith. This is what we mean when we talk about justification by faith. We see that the sending of Christ as a substitute was God's idea, his gracious idea, his gracious idea to be received by faith. And so justification is the legal declaration by God, which says that sinners are found not guilty based on what Christ has done. Not only are they found not guilty, but they're also found righteous in God's eyes if they trust in Christ's atoning work. We might say that justification involves a twin verdict of God. First, we're declared not guilty, and second, we're declared perfectly righteous. So we receive this verdict from God our judge because of Jesus' sacrifice, taking away our guilt, but also because of Jesus' perfect righteousness, which is counted to us. So that twin verdict, both forgiven and righteous, based on the substitutionary death and perfect life of Jesus in our place. Another way we might define justification would be to use a theological language that church, the church has used in history. So the Heidelberg Catechism, which we recited last week, describes it this way. Out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. So you hear that twin verdict again. God treats us as if we never sinned. He erases all the bad that we've done, and he credits to us Christ's obedience. You might have heard justification described this way, just as if I'd never sinned, right? Well, that's coming right from this language here. But it's even more than just as if I'd never sinned. It's positively accounting to us Christ's righteousness. So justification is this act of God based on Christ's work, propitiating work, where God forgives us for the wrongs we've done and credits to us the perfect obedience of Christ. Today in the sermon, I'm going to use this word justify and justification a lot. And so your job today is to try to keep in mind this twin definition, forgiveness and righteousness in God's eyes. You can maybe think of it as shorthand as forgiveness, but we want to keep in mind this fuller picture that forgiveness is based on Christ's work. And it also involves this crediting to us of righteousness, of Christ's righteousness on our account. Sinners can only be saved 
if we're justified before God. We need both to be forgiven for the wrongs we've done, and we need Christ's righteousness if we want to stand in God's presence and have fellowship with him. And so in this passage today, Paul makes an argument that only the true gospel, the gospel that he preaches, only that gospel saves, only that gospel justifies, and false gospels enslave. In doing so, he answers the two questions we began with. What message saves and what does the Christian life look like? So we're going to look at three statements in our text that answer those questions. First, he answers the question, what message saves, in the negative. Good works justify no one. Good works save no one. Second, we'll look at the fact that faith in Christ is what justifies. Faith in Christ justifies. And third, the life of faith magnifies the grace of God. The Christian life looks like the life of faith which magnifies the grace of God. So let's begin by looking at this first point, that good works justify no one. As we look at this, we have to remember again, Paul's making a long argument in this book against false teachers who are preaching this different gospel. And so as Paul addresses the question, what message saves us? He starts with this negative. Good works justify no one. And to make his point, he uses a rhetorical strategy. The strategy is this. He says, look, when it comes down to it, all of us in this, in this letter, me, my audience, even the false teachers, we all agree that the law of Moses saves no one. The false teachers, again, in the Galatia were saying that, that in order to be saved, Gentile Christians needed essentially to convert to Judaism. That's why there's so much talk about circumcision. It was the sign of conversion. So they were these Jewish Christians arguing that Gentile Christians need to convert to some form of Judaism in order to be saved. And so Paul addresses these false teachers and in a way establishes some common ground by saying, we all know that no one is justified by the law. It's a rhetorical strategy. But he does this in a way that sounds strange to us at first because he begins in verse 15 by saying, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. I mean, at first glance, it sounds like he's being rude or condescending to his Gentile brothers by calling them sinners. But this was likely just a way that, that his opponents were talking. It was a kind of a common traditional Jewish way of dividing people into pious Jews and Gentile sinners. So by using it, Paul's not trying to demean anyone or to say that only the Gentiles are sinners, but Jews are not. We know from reading Romans, he believes all people are sinful. Rather, Paul is stepping into his opponent's shoes for a second. So in verse 16, he says, Yet we know, so we Jews by birth, know that a person is not justified by works of the law. So he's saying to his Jewish interlocutors, and really he's saying to those in his audience who are tempted by his Jewish opponents, so let's, let's just take a step back from the Jew-Gentile debate for a second. Let's look at this purely from a Jewish perspective. Even as Jews, we know that no one is justified by works of the law, he's saying. That phrase, works of the law, may seem confusing, but it refers to the entire system of laws and rituals that God gave to Israel through Moses. We speak of it as a covenant because there were blessings promised by God to his people if they obeyed, and there were curses promised by God if they disobeyed. It was a system of rituals of purification and sacrifice at the tabernacle and temple. 
The law of Moses was also a legal code for his people that defined them as his redeemed people, Israel. It's a system that symbolized God's grace and God's kingly rule over his people. But even though it symbolized these things, we see that the symbols could not save. And the scriptures tell us this. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away the sins of any worshiper. And the rule of God revealed in the law, it didn't produce submission in the hearts of God's people. It didn't empower Israel to obey. So Paul, again, is saying to his Jewish opponents, we both know that no sinful human being can be declared righteous by God by the sacrifice of bulls and goats, by obeying these laws which we've actually failed to obey. He's saying to his opponents, all Jews know that the Mosaic system failed to bring true forgiveness and righteousness in God's eyes. Now, to say that the law failed is not to denigrate it or to say that it's bad or of no value. What Paul is really saying, again, is that Jews have failed to keep the law. He says in Romans, we, it was a privilege, a grace to us. We've had the privilege of receiving this law, but because of sin's enslaving power, its killing power over us, we were unable to keep the law. The law didn't really touch our sin problem. So the Jewish experience of the law and he can say this appealing to all of their experience, is we're not justified by it. Rather, our experience of the law is that it condemns us. You might even say, he's saying, this is actually the purpose for which the law was intended. It was to bring us to a point of not trusting in our ability to keep it. Its ultimate point was actually to point them to the fact they needed something more than the law. Paul gets at this in verse 19 when he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Part of his argument in Galatians and Romans is that now that Christ has come, the Mosaic law's proper function can be seen. And that proper function was actually to lead Jews away from keeping the law and to trust in Christ. Through the law, he died to the law. Through the law, meaning that if you follow the law to its logical end, it should lead you to become like Paul and die to the law and trust in Christ. As I said, Paul here is appealing to the professed Christian faith of his opponents. He's already made it clear that these opponents have distorted the gospel by trying to require law-keeping, but now he can appeal to them in saying, the fact that these teachers do think of themselves as Christians means that you think the law is not enough. To call yourself a Christian if you were ethnically Jewish and have you know, lived at some point trying to keep the law, to now call yourself a Christian is to admit that the law was not enough, that the law could not justify. If the law was enough, you wouldn't need to believe in Christ. This is a powerful point to anyone who's tempted to follow these false teachers. Like, well, well why are they saying they need Christ if the law was enough? Paul is saying, we know where justification before God is not found. We are not justified by our law-keeping. Our sin ended any hope that we could be justified by keeping the law. Now, this is a lot going deep into the Galatian controversy. We might be saying here, well, we're not Galatians, right? We don't have this issue of trying to keep the law of Moses. But what Paul is saying here applies to people who may be trying to save themselves in other ways. Justification 
is not found in our own good works. For example, we might look at what the the Mormon message is. In, In their message, they would say that all people are saved in some sense. But they they kind of divide up the the levels of goodness you'll have in the afterlife based on your obedience now. Or based on how well you resist sin and imitate Christ now. It's ultimately a religion of works. Of trying to save yourself by being good enough to get into a certain level of paradise after you depart from this life. It's It's a message of being justified before God by works. But we can't be justified by works, whether we're talking about Mormonism or any other religious system that says somehow the good stuff we do will save us. And that's because we're enslaved by sin and our guilt is overwhelming. So we're unable by the good works that we do to erase the bad works that we've already done. No amount of goodness could tip the scales in our favor because our sin is an infinite offense against a holy God. And even if there were a way for us to tip the scales in our favor, we know that this enslaving power of sin still lives within us. We continue to sin, even those of us who are Christians, because sin's power is so great. So our sin against God is too great to be overcome by our own good works. If you're tempted by some system of morality that says be good enough, it's a false gospel that cannot save. Our good works can't justify us. Nobody is justified before God by their good works. Paul wants us to be perfectly clear about that. And I think he might appeal to us in the same way he appeals to his Jewish friends. We know nobody's being saved by their good works. If we're honest about our goodness, we know our goodness is not good enough. We might venture beyond organized religion and think about what message of salvation is our culture preaching to us. And if we look at that, we'll see justification isn't found there either. Our cultural gospel promises us fulfillment and wholeness if we would only throw off the shackles that our parents have tried to impose upon us or maybe that religion or traditions impose upon us and be true to ourselves. This message says that religion and traditions are harmful to our health and flourishing. They would even go so far as to call them immoral constraints on our individuality. They suppress our true identity. But if we can repent of falling prey to those old traditions and we can commit to expressing our true selves, if we can practice self-care and attend to our own mental health, then we'll find life and joy and peace. Now, in this system, God is not a holy, transcendent, righteous God who rules us and defines us. He's more like a force for good or an encouraging coach who's there to affirm us in whatever we want to do. This message makes us feel good for a while. It may feel like it frees us from any kind of self-condemnation, but it cannot bear the weight of our lives. It's out of touch with the truth that evil exists both out there in the world and inside our own hearts. And so it lies about who we are and who God is. At best, these false gospels are half-truths masquerading as the whole truth. So take that gospel of morality. Be good enough. Well, morality is important. 
Right? God wants us to pursue goodness because he's good, but it can't save us. Being authentically who you are and not a hypocrite, that's a good thing. Even attending to your mental health can be a good thing and be an important thing. But those things don't save us. When we pursue those things outside the gospel, they enslave us. So again, if Paul were writing directly to us, he would say something like he says to his Jewish opponents. We all know right standing before God, forgiveness of our sin, is not found in any of those places that you're tempted to look on earth. It's not found in Old Testament rules and rituals. It's not found in the man-made religions of the world. And we all know it's not found inside ourselves. You can't solve your sin problem. You can't make yourself right before God. Paul's opening statement is, we know for certain where forgiveness is not found. It's not found in works. Works, the things that we do, justify no one. We can't earn our forgiveness. We can't make ourselves acceptable in God's eyes. Paul's saying, don't keep chasing after what's not there. No one's justified by works. So part A of his answer is, how can we be saved? Is, is you can't be saved by your own works. And part B of his answer is that faith in Christ is what justifies. Faith in Christ is what justifies. This is our second point. This may seem too obvious to deserve a whole point in a sermon, right? I mean, we all believe this, right? We are saved by faith. Faith is what saves. Trust in God and his promises, what he's done for us. But yet, if we talk to each other and you know, think about our Christian lives, it's often the case that we're overlooking the obvious. We are defaulting into some kind of uh, self-salvation, or I did this bad thing and so God's going to slam me down because of it. There's almost a, a belief in a, a karmic uh, retribution in our lives, right? Well, if we sit here and meditate for a minute on the faith that saves and on Christ who saves, we'll be helped by li about to live the Christian life God wants us to live. So to say that faith in Christ justifies helps us by pointing our attention to Christ. To say that faith in Christ justifies says that Christ is the sufficient Savior. So why reflect on faith and the faith that justifies? Because it points us to Jesus it gives us a chance to meditate on the fact that Christ is able to save. We get to meditate on his perfect obedience to his Father. If we put Jesus in the biblical story, we can see how he's unlike Adam. Adam fell to temptation when Satan tempted him. Jesus resisted temptation when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. We can see how Jesus is unlike Israel. Israel went into the wilderness and rebelled and grumbled against God. Jesus went into the wilderness and trusted God and depended on God. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of Moses. Think about the high priests of Israel. We know from the book of Hebrews that those high priests had sin of their own that they had to atone for. But Jesus, it says, he has no sin. He's the sinless high priest. Or think about the kings of Israel. They were supposed to be sons of God who administered God's law. But we know again and again the kings of Israel, even great King David, fell prey to seeking their own glory. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't worship his own glory. He laid aside his glory in order to come and serve his people. 
Or we might think of the false prophets of Israel. They sometimes spoke what their kings wanted to hear or what the people wanted to hear. But Jesus, he only spoke what the Father gave him to speak. Or we might think of those old covenant sacrifices that we've already mentioned, the blood of bulls and goats. They couldn't take away anyone's sin. But Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior. He's the only one that can propitiate, turn away God's wrath from us. Through his life, he perfectly satisfied God's standard of holiness. Through his death, he perfectly satisfied God's justice and wrath against sinners. There is no imperfection in Jesus' work. There is nothing lacking in Jesus' work. So we can rejoice because Christ is the sufficient Savior. Our justification is not based on how we feel today or what good works we've done. It's based in the sufficiency of Jesus. And so we don't have to go chasing any other means of salvation. We don't have to seek to add on something to what Christ has done because nothing we can do could improve upon it. It's perfect. It's sufficient. Do you know this? Do you know Jesus as your all-sufficient Savior? You know, no matter how great your guilt and shame, Christ's blood covers you, washes you, and makes you clean. No matter how far you've fallen, Christ will lift you up. When we sin, we glorify the sufficient Savior by bringing our sin to him and once again receiving the forgiveness that he purchased with his blood. How does the way you deal with your sin reveal what you think of Christ and his sufficiency? If we doubt his sufficiency, you might try to cover it up or make up for it. But if we know that Jesus is the sufficient Savior, we'll bring our sin to him and receive forgiveness. Because he's sufficient, we can also proclaim him with confidence. Our friends and family members who seem the most lost, Jesus is sufficient for them. His grace was sufficient for the Apostle Paul, who calls himself the chief of sinners. You know his grace has been sufficient for us. We can believe and trust that his work on the cross is sufficient to pay for the sins of the worst sinner we know, whether that's us or somebody else. As the hymn says, his blood can make the foulest clean, his blood atone for me. So because of the sufficiency of Christ, we proclaim him, we plead with our friends and neighbors to believe in him. As we meditate on the sufficiency of Christ, this leads us to the certainty of our justification. Paul says in verse 16, we know, we know that works don't justify, we know that justification comes by faith in Christ. It's remarkable to look in the middle of verse 16 and see how Paul repeats himself, right? He says that we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but we know that through faith in Christ Jesus, we are justified. So because we know that we're justified by faith in Christ Jesus, we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. He repeats himself to say, we know where justification is, so we've believed Christ and we've received what Christ has promised us. Because of the sufficiency of Christ, we can know for certain 
that we are justified by faith in Christ. We are confident that God is able to do what he promises in Christ. He is able to forgive the guilty and to declare us righteous. This is the foundation, again, of our assurance of salvation. God does not ask us to earn our righteousness, but to receive it as a gift, given through the sacrifices of Christ. And faith are like the hands of our soul. We, we receive what Christ has done by faith. We believe that he is able. When we examine ourselves and we look for assurance inside, we can always find reasons to doubt. Right? We know our secret thoughts and desires like nobody else does. And so we can look at ourselves and become quickly discouraged about our salvation. But when we remember that God put forth his Son as the propitiation for our sins, we have hope. Again, this is God's idea. God put him forth to die and to be received by faith. So when we remember the sufficiency of Christ, we know that we are justified by his work. Our sins are taken away. In Colossians, Paul says that God has forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. Imagine the reams of paper it would take to log all of the sins you've had in thought, word, and deed. All sinful thoughts, all sinful words, all sinful actions written down, taken away, nailed to the cross. Nailed to the cross and we bear them no more, as we'll sing in our communion hymn. If you trust in Christ, the sufficient Savior. You can have certainty that you're forgiven, that you're declared righteous, you're clothed in Christ's righteousness. So justification by faith in Christ is certain. Our righteousness before God doesn't depend on our feelings or how good I've been today. It is based on the sufficiency of Christ. And because of this, because it's of Christ's sufficiency and because of the certainty of justification, it also means that justification should be central to our Christian life. We should never stray far from this good news. If you have sinned today, then you can rejoice in the justifying grace of God in Christ. And again, we glorify God by trusting in his work. Justification by faith is not only the assurance of our salvation today, but it's also our assurance for the future. So in Galatians 5, 5, Paul will say, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Righteousness and justification basically translate the same Greek word. So justification is something we have because of what Christ has done in the past, and it's something we anticipate when we stand before God on the last day, and if he says to us, why should I let you into my heaven? We say, because of the work of Christ for me. I'm trusting in him to save me. That's our confidence when we stand before God, the judge, on the last day. And we have hope that on that last day, he will say, you are righteous. Welcome in to my heaven. We persevere in the hope that we are righteous and will be declared righteous and vindicated on the last day. When we say here in our church, as we often do, that the Christian life is a life of repentance and faith, that's all because of this doctrine of justification by faith. We can be honest about our sin because God's wrath has been poured out on Christ for us. It's been publicly handled. 
right? To, to become a Christian and to say, I believe in the cross of Christ, to say, all the shame and guilt that Jesus bore, that was mine. He took it. We've kind of admitted the worst thing about ourselves right there by proclaiming Christ is our Savior. We deserve to be condemned. We deserve to be hung naked on the cross, but Jesus took it for us. Because of justification by faith, we can repent each day and be assured of God's forgiveness. It's central to the Christian life. A few ways to diagnose, is it central to me? Ask, am I humble? Justification, Paul says, removes boasting. It makes us a humble people. It teaches us that we did not deserve God's forgiveness, but God graciously gave it to us. Are you humble? Another question you could ask to diagnose whether justification is near to you in your faith. Are you loving and forgiving of others? Jesus says that if we know how much we've been forgiven, we'll be full of love and be willing to forgive others. If you're unwilling to forgive others when they sin against you, it may be a sign that you're neglecting your justification before God. You've forgotten how much you've been forgiven through Christ. And are you hopeful? Justification gives us hope. We're going to be discouraged many times in our lives, disappointed with things that happen, but never utterly hopeless because God has declared us righteous and it means we, he will declare us righteous on the last day. Because of justification, we're never hopeless. Finally, are you encouraging others? This doctrine of justification gives you something to proclaim to your brothers and sisters in this church. It's really one of the pillars of a church's fellowship. We encourage one another with the good news that Christ has taken our sin upon himself. And so we say to a brother or sister, look to Christ. Rejoice in his forgiveness. Today, you are not guilty, but righteous because of the work of Christ. We encourage each other to keep persevering in hope, looking forward to that day when we will be vindicated by Christ before the throne of God. So Paul's answered this first big question. How is it that people are saved? How is it that sinners are declared righteous? He's answered it in two parts. We're not declared righteous by our works, and we are declared righteous by faith in Christ. But then that leads to another question. What will it look like for this justified sinner to live the Christian life? One common uh, objection to justification is the objection we see in question 64 of the Heidelberg Catechism that we recited. Doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? Indifferent there means indifferent to what God wants, indifferent to goodness and love. Doesn't it just give us a license to sin? Well, it seems that Paul's interlocutors were arguing the same thing. Look at what he says in verse 17. He turns to this question. But if in our endeavor to be justified... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? But Paul's saying, you know, you, or the, his, his opponents were saying, your, your converts are sinners. There's no law to govern them. There's no Mosaic covenant to tell them how to live. Paul, your gospel turns Christians into libertines who just do whatever they want. That's why we have to add on the law of Moses. They say, if God so freely forgives, 
then you're going to encourage sin and you're going to make Christ an accomplice to their sin. Of course, to this, Paul says, certainly not. In verse 21, he'll show us why justification of faith does not encourage sin. But before he does that, he levels his own accusation at law-keeping. So he, he provides his certainly not as his answer, but then he goes on the offensive. He says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What Paul is saying here is that the real transgression of the law is to try to rebuild it. As we've said earlier, now that Christ has come, the law points people to its own expiration. It directs them to die to the law and trust in Christ. But Paul's kind of needling his opponents ironically. It's those who are trying to rebuild the Mosaic system who are guilty of transgressing the law. They're not following where the law leads them now that Christ has come on the scene. They need to die to the law and live by faith in Christ. So now Paul can return to the thread. How is it that a justified sinner is not encouraged to sin? And the answer is that by faith in Christ, we die and rise again with Christ. By faith, Christ lives in us. The faith that justifies is the faith that unites believers to Christ. So look at verses 20 and 21. I, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if the righteousness were through the law, then, the, then Christ died for no purpose. So faith in Christ not only brings justification, but also brings the blessing of, of new spiritual life. Resurrection life. Jesus does not free us from guilt and then leave us to ourselves. Rather, he lives within us. We live by faith in him. Well, this doesn't mean there's going to be no struggle with sin or that holiness is automatic and easy for Christians. What our union with Christ means is that God creates spiritual life within believers And this spiritual life is what empowers our fight against sin. Paul is saying, there has been a decisive change in the Christian. Sin may remain, but sin is no longer the enslaving power that it once was. So every believer can now say with Paul in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and Christ now lives in me. I'm dead to sin, and I'm alive with Christ. Paul gives us two different ways to describe this new spiritual life. So way number one is to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This first way describes how the Holy Spirit applies Christ's work to our lives. The Holy Spirit brings an end to the old self. So the dead and sin person that we once were has died. And now the Holy Spirit has raised us to new life and made us, the Holy Spirit has made his home in our hearts. This change is so dramatic that we can say that the I who was ruled by sin is now dead. I was crucified with Christ. 
And now Christ himself rules our lives in such a way that we can say, Christ lives in me. So that's the first way Paul teaches us to talk about this new spiritual life. We might say this is the divine way, talking about what Christ and God have done in us through the Holy Spirit. The second way is the last sentence of verse 20. I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So how do you experience this new spiritual life that's within you? By faith. A life of ongoing faith. We live by faith, Paul says. The principle that animates us and empowers us every day is our trust in the life-giving love of God the Son. Even here, the focus is not on our faith, but on the Son of God's self-giving love. Our faith is fixed upon his love, the love and sacrifice of the Son of God. Today, you and I are to live by trusting that God loves us. We live by receiving his gracious life that he's put within us. We shouldn't pass over the fact that in verse 20, Paul switches from talking about Jesus in terms of his title Christ and his human name Jesus to naming the Son of God. To speak of the Son of God brings to mind the truth that Jesus is God and that he existed for all eternity before he was born of Mary. For all eternity, the Son of God lived a perfect, glorious life in perfect glorious fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit. So our new spiritual life comes because God the Son emptied himself of his divine glory and became a man. God loved us and gave himself for us. And so our new life as believers is sharing in God's own divine life. God the Son loves us. God the Son gives himself for us. God gives himself to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we live by faith in the grace of God. This grace comes to us through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so, are Paul's opponents right to fret about where justification will lead? Will it turn Christians into sinners? Paul says, certainly not. Because Christ, the Son of God, indwells his people. Those who have been justified by faith now live by faith in the Son of God. They're not only justified by faith, but they also receive God's love and are filled with God's life by the power of the Spirit. And so Paul ends in verse 21 with a a final shot across the bow of the false teachers. He's going back to that objection he answered in verses 17 and 18, that accusation that justification encourages sin. They say if justification encourages sin, then it would empty out, it would nullify the grace of God. But Paul counters in verse 21 and says, it's not Paul's gospel of justification that nullifies the grace of God. No, Paul's gospel is grace through and through from beginning to end. It begins with forgiveness and justification and it continues by faith and the indwelling power of God. Rather, it's the message of the Jewish opponents that empties out the death of Christ. If justification comes through the law, then Christ didn't need to die. The false gospel of the Jews, uh, the Jewish Christians who are teaching Jesus plus the law of Moses, that gospel empties out Jesus' death. It says that Jesus' work was not sufficient. 
And so Paul ends with this powerful argument that his gospel is the one that doesn't nullify grace. His gospel is the one that celebrates grace from beginning to end. The message that glorifies Christ is the gospel of justification by faith. Sinners forgiven and declared righteous. Sinners empowered by the life of God to live to live the life that God wants for them. False gospels say you need to do something, something else besides believing in Jesus to have life. The true gospel says the Son of God loves you in that you are accepted by God, by faith in him. If you trust in his good news, you're forgiven, freed from the power of sin and death, and Christ lives in you. We see here that Paul is embroiled in an argument And he makes his points powerfully, rhetorically. The false gospel transgresses the law and it denigrates the sacrifice of Christ. Those are huge claims that he makes. But he's making them to try to convince this young church not to go after these false teachers. But again, we're not involved in this Galatian dispute. It can seem a long way away from us. So how do we live out this message that Paul would have for us? Well, we live it out by seeking to live the kind of life that magnifies the grace of Christ. So first, we live out a life of those who are freed from sin's guilt. That means we live in joy and confidence that we're forgiven by God and clothed in his righteousness. We come boldly before God's throne of grace. When we sin, it should grieve us, but it shouldn't keep us from coming to God. The justification we've received enables us to deal with our sin honestly and forthrightly. So we magnify the grace of God by confessing our sin, by repenting of it, by receiving God's grace of forgiveness. Another way we magnify the grace of God is by living in the reality that Christ lives in you. We are no longer dead in sin. We're no longer enslaved to every sinful desire. We're free. But Paul will say, don't use your freedom as an occasion for the flesh. We're supposed to imitate the Son of God's love for us. As he loved us and gave himself for us, we love and serve each other. And later in Galatians, Paul will command us to do this. Galatians 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In Galatians 5.13, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. In Galatians 6.3, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. God's grace changes us. When Christ rules in our hearts, when he lives within us, our lives should be marked by his servant-hearted love. By faith we love and serve others. So Paul is adamant here. His gospel does not nullify nullify grace. It does not encourage sin. But he does imply that there is a way that our lives might belittle the grace of God if we were to use our freedom as an occasion to sin. If we were to use our freedom as a reason to indulge ourselves, that would not honor God's grace. If we're selfish and self-indulgent, and we don't care that we are selfish and self-indulgent, we may be saying that we've never truly known the grace of Christ. We've already confessed with the Heidelberg Catechism, it's, all, it's impossible 
for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce the fruits of gratitude. So the gospel does not nullify the grace of God, but it's possible to be deceived and to live a life out of step with the truth of the gospel. This gets very practical, doesn't it? We don't magnify God's grace by keeping Old Testament laws. We don't magnify the grace of Christ by coming up with our own rituals or following a man-made religion. Rather, we do magnify the grace of Christ by serving our kids. We magnify the grace of Christ by laying down our lives to serve our neighbors because we trust in Christ and have been loved much by him. We love Christ by encouraging our spouse to humbly look to Christ. We love Christ by helping our brothers and sisters in this church by, by following, to follow Jesus. In all of those ways, we magnify the grace of Christ. So is there evidence that Christ lives in you now? Is faith working through love in your life? Are you magnifying the grace of Christ or are you nullifying it? Nullifying it by preaching a false gospel or practicing a false gospel or living for yourself? What does your life reveal? If these questions expose some sin in your life, Paul's message here is for you. Because even when our sin is exposed, we can magnify the grace of Christ. We can trust in Christ, the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Christ knew your sin, and he loved you, and he gave himself for you to justify you by faith. Through him you are forgiven and declared righteous, and through him you are alive to God. The love of God, revealed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is God's justifying, regenerating, and indwelling, saving grace to us. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Father, we must confess that we believe, but we need you to help our unbelief. We pray for eyes to see more clearly the beauty and sufficiency of Christ our Savior. We pray for your help not to look inward, but to look to Jesus and to know for certain that we are forgiven and declared righteous by faith in him. We pray for your help to live by faith in an ongoing way, knowing that we've died to sin and we are alive to you through Jesus Christ. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.